Thanks, Pastor Herman. Happy Thanksgiving weekend, and I hope wherever you are watching from, you've had some good food and even more importantly, some great time with friends and family and loved ones over the past few days. Uh, as Pastor Herman just mentioned, uh, I'm Tilden, the executive pastor for New Beginnings, and I have the privilege of being the San Jose campus pastor. So I also want to give a shout out to our amazing San Jose community. And as I was thinking about this message, I just wanted to say that the things that God is doing in San Jose, the people that I get to serve and to serve with, uh, they are among the greatest things that I am thankful for uh, in this Thanksgiving weekend. Since it is Thanksgiving weekend, we're going to stay on theme. We're going to talk about gratitude, but with a little twist. The title of this message is Neuroscience, Gratitude, and the Gospel. So that might give you a hint of how this message is going to be a little bit different than a typical message on gratitude. So as we begin, let me start by sharing a personal Thanksgiving story. When I was growing up, our family didn't eat turkey. I grew up in a first-generation Chinese-American home, and they don't have turkeys in China. If you go to a Chinese restaurant, you will never find turkey on the menu. And so we never ate turkey, even on Thanksgiving. But by the time I was around, you know, second grade, eight years old, seven, eight years old, every year that Thanksgiving would roll around, would be in school, we'd do all these Thanksgiving crafts. You know, we'd do the hand on the paper plate and you trace your hand and you make a turkey. And all my friends every year would talk about how excited they were for their Thanksgiving meal and the turkey that they were going to eat. And I decided around that time that, I was missing out, that turkey must be the most delicious food on the planet, and that somehow I had been deprived. And so I started bugging my parents, how come we never eat turkey on Thanksgiving? And it just so happened that that year, my parents said, well, we're going to go to one of our friend's houses, and they're going to serve turkey for Thanksgiving. And I was so overjoyed. I was so excited. I was so grateful that finally I was going to experience this amazing delicacy. So we get to Thanksgiving dinner. It was a pretty big party. I remember that there was a buffet line. I start moving down the buffet line. I see all kinds of other things that I had never seen before, like stuffing and cranberry sauce. But I didn't care about them at all. I was laser focused on the turkey because I didn't want anything else adulterating that pure goodness that I was sure I was about to experience. I piled up plate full high with turkey, and I got ready to take my first bite. Now, the other thing that you have to know is that my parents' friends, the, whose house that we were at, they were also first-generation Chinese immigrants. So YouTube didn't exist at that time. The internet wasn't invented yet. I don't know where they found their recipe for turkey, but I'm pretty sure it was their first time ever making turkey for Thanksgiving. So, Eight years old, the turkey's on my fork. I pop it in my mouth, totally expecting an amazing experience. And then I basically spit it back out onto my plate. It was inedible. It was dry and tasteless, no flavor whatsoever. 
And I remember thinking in my head, I still, to this day, I remember the exact experience. And I remember thinking, how could anyone be grateful for this? How could anyone look forward to this? And at that moment, as much as an eight-year-old can be disillusioned, I just felt like all the gratitude that I had had completely disappeared. And I don't remember what I did with the rest of that plate of turkey, but I do know that I didn't have another bite of turkey for the next 10 years. It was that scarring of an experience. All right, here's the point. For just about all of us, gratitude is tied to whether we experience good things in life, whether our hopes and expectations are fulfilled or even better, exceeded. This is true whether it's a delicious bite of food, a new job, uh, a great grade on an exam, a new relationship, or even a great Black, Black Friday deal. And gratitude actually has a huge impact on our lives in very tangible ways. Uh, The Mayo Clinic, one of the premier hospital systems in our country, has an article about gratitude. And they describe the benefits of gratitude in this way. Uh, I quote, Studies have shown that feeling thankful can improve sleep, mood, and immunity. Gratitude can decrease depression, anxiety, difficulties with chronic pain, and the risk of disease. And then this is how they end. If there was a pill that could do all this, everyone would be taking it. But as amazing as the impact of gratitude can be on our lives, the flip side of gratitude is the reality that that gratitude is incredibly hard to sustain. The feeling of gratitude can be elusive even when most things in our lives are going well. And when life gets hard or things don't go the way that we hope for, it's so easy for gratitude to basically disappear. Now, this is a problem, how to sustain gratitude, that a lot of people are trying to figure out. If you search for gratitude on Amazon, you'll see over 30,000 results, all relating in one way or another of how to keep reminding people about gratitude or how to sustain gratitude. There are books on gratitude, gratitude journals, uh, gratitude writing prompts, T-shirts about gratitude. Now, as most folks know, before I came into pastoral ministry, my background was in engineering. I love science. I'm always fascinated by the ways that science and faith intersect. And as I was preparing for this message, I listened to a podcast entitled The Science of Gratitude by the Huberman Lab podcast, one of my favorite podcasts. Here's a picture of Dr. Huberman. And I'm just going to call him Huberman for the rest of this message because that's how his podcast refers to him on their about page. So Huberman is a neuroscientist at Stanford, and this podcast on gratitude has a ton of interesting insights, um, some of which I fold into this message. But one of the takeaways of this podcast was that the most common ways that many of us try to sustain gratitude don't actually turn out to be particularly effective. And so as I was reflecting on all these things, all my preparation came together in a very simple truth. The Bible has something incredibly unique and important to say about gratitude. 
and that remarkably, the very latest neuroscience is just starting to confirm what the Bible has been teaching about gratitude all along. And my hope every time I teach is to try to be helpful. And especially with this challenge of sustaining gratitude, I wanted to provide something concrete that each of us can use this week, starting tomorrow. So my goal in this message is to suggest a gratitude practice that will sustain gratitude in the way that God intends in his goodness for our lives. So let's jump in. The passage that we're looking at today is Psalm 23. It's a familiar passage, a beloved passage for many of us. And I'm choosing it on purpose for a reason that hopefully will be clear by the end of this message. This psalm is one of the first passages of scripture that I memorized uh, late in high school when I started to become a follower of Jesus. So it has a lot of personal significance for me as well. And I'm going to use the version that I memorized. So it might be slightly different from the version that you have, but it should be very similar. And we're going to move through this psalm section by section. So the first few verses of Psalm 23, written by King David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. He guides me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. This first part of Psalm 23, this psalm of thanksgiving and gratitude, reminds us that God does indeed provide good things for our lives. In the context of the psalm, green pastures, quiet waters, a guided path. And when we recognize good things in our lives, it is fully appropriate for us to be grateful for them. Now, even these first few verses of this psalm, we learn an important principle about gratitude and joy. And we learn that it's not actually the blessings themselves that directly cause joy in our lives, but it's gratitude for our blessings that unlocks joy in our lives. And if we think about this even briefly, we know that this is true, right? We all know people who have far more of, than we do, far more of the things that we typically associate with gratitude. So maybe far more in terms of, you know, financial resources, far more maybe in terms of, you know, kind of career status or title, far more uh, in terms of possessions. And yet we know people who have far more that aren't any more joyful or contented than we are. In fact, some of the people that we know that have far more are far more dissatisfied than we are. They're people who tend to focus on the things that they don't have rather than the things that they do. Now, on the flip side, we also all know people that have far less than we do. And some of the people that we know that have far less are actually much more contented and grateful and thankful and joyful. And we wish we had the kind of joy that we see in their lives. So it's not actually the things or the circumstances that directly make us joyful or dissatisfied. It's actually the presence of gratitude. Joy is impossible without gratitude. As a very clear example of this, let me introduce you to David Steindl Rast. David Steindl Rast is a Benedictine monk 
who has the interesting moniker of grandfather of gratitude. I don't know how you get that title, but it's probably because he's well known for teaching about gratitude across decades. And he's taught in a number of different public contexts. And when you hear his teaching, when you get a sense of who he is, you know that he's not faking it. He just exudes gratitude in his life and in his teaching. The interesting thing is, when you think about it, he doesn't have most of the things that we often associate as the sources of gratitude in our lives. He's taken a vow of poverty, which means that he has no personal possessions of his own and that his financial net worth is zero. In terms of career, his primary title is brother, which is a completely honorable title, but it's not one that most of us aspire to. He's taken a vow of chastity and celibacy, which means that among other things, he doesn't have a traditional family and the sources of kind of family relationship that most of us would associate with things that we're grateful for. And this year, he's turning 97 years old. So all the things that we might be grateful for that are associated with youth or the opportunity for certain kinds of experiences or adventure are mostly in the past for him. And yet he is an incredible example of someone whose life is rooted in gratitude and his life bears out what he teaches. It is not joy that makes us grateful. It is gratitude that makes us joyful. But it is so, so hard to maintain gratitude. All kinds of things steal our gratitude. And I'm not just talking about poorly cooked turkey. What happens when our job is making us miserable? Or we're unemployed for an extended season and it is so hard to find an opportunity to work that we desperately need? Or we blow it on a big exam or a work project, and we feel like the future that we're working so hard for is at risk. Or when our closest relationships are broken and painful, or when unexpected tragedy occurs and our worst fears are realized and our life is turned upside down. Some of us are facing circumstances like these right now. And for almost all of us, when we face this kind of loss and pain and tragedy, our feelings of gratitude are shaken. Many times they just completely disappear. And we struggle with feeling like the dominant emotions that are present in our lives are negative. Anxiety, anger, bitterness, envy. Thankfully, Psalm 23 does not end with these first few verses of the psalm. And this psalm teaches us that even in life's toughest moments, sustained gratitude is possible. You know, David doesn't say, the Lord is my shepherd, and as long as I'm in green pastures and quiet waters and I have a guided path, then I can be grateful and thankful. No, Psalm 23 continues. And in verse 4, this is what David is talking about. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, 
In some translations, this may be the valley of deep darkness because the Hebrew word has both connotations. But he says, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. As we sit with this section, what do we notice? Well, first thing we notice is that just because David has the Lord as his shepherd, it doesn't mean that he can avoid a dark valley. You know, when I first uh, memorized this psalm and learned this psalm, I didn't know much about David's life. And so when I just came to this part of the psalm, I actually imagined that David somehow was invulnerable as he was going through this dark valley. And the closest picture that I had in my mind is actually a video game that I used to play that my daughter still plays. Uh, It's Mario Kart. And if you've ever played the game, you know that every now and then you're able to get a star and the star makes you shiny as you're in this racing game. And when you have this star shine over you, it doesn't matter what's coming your way. It doesn't matter what hits you. Everything just bounces off and you're invincible. And I used to think that that's what it's like for David going through this dark valley. But when you know more about David's life, you know that that's not true. That no one goes through the dark valley unscathed. That there are real losses that he faced and there are real losses that we face in life. So as we think about what David is describing, going through a valley of near total darkness, surrounded by the threat of death, we ask the question, how can this still be a psalm of gratitude and thanksgiving? And then in that place, David says that he finds himself surrounded by enemies. And as we think about that word enemies and all the things and people that David encountered in his life, I don't primarily want us to think about folks like, you know, Goliath or Saul or other enemies that David may have faced in battle. Because I don't think that those are the ones that the Bible is talking about. I don't think that those are even the ones that David would have been thinking about. As we think about the span of David's life, as we think about the fact that he lost and mourned at least three of his sons, and each of the deaths of his sons are actually directly tied to, some, to a choice that David himself made, that he had a sense of responsibility for each of his sons passing. And when we think about Bathsheba and Uriah, adultery and cover-up, and we think about the chaos in his family that David oversaw and how David was actually deposed and had to flee his kingship multiple times, and he had to flee for his life at different moments, we get a better sense of what these enemies represent. The enemies of shame and guilt are there, The enemies of regret and grief are there. Loneliness and despair are there. In this dark valley, David is surrounded by these enemies. Enemies whose voices are designed to steal away gratitude and joy. These are enemies in our lives too, aren't they? As we think about the span of our lives, we think about our moments of shame and regret. 
So again, the question, how is it possible that this psalm is a psalm of sustained gratitude? Well, two things happen in this dark valley that are important as we see how David held on to gratitude and was able to write this psalm. First, in this dark valley, David goes from speaking about God to speaking to God. The psalm starts with David speaking about God in third person. The Lord is my shepherd. And then here in this dark valley, David switches to speaking to God. You are with me. God becomes personal and intimate in the dark valley. The second thing that happens is that the role of God changes. In the first section, God is a shepherd taking care of David, providing good things for David. But in these verses, God has become a host and a servant, preparing a table, offering an anointing, which reflects a spiritual blessing. And we find in these verses somehow that the presence of God with David in the dark valley amidst his enemies doesn't immediately take David out of the valley. But David is able to experience God's assurance, his protection, his grace right where he's at. And somehow it's enough to sustain David's gratitude as he's walking through this valley. So I mentioned earlier that I listened to a podcast from Andrew Huberman, uh, the Stanford neuroscientist, about the science of gratitude. Highly recommend the podcast, uh, especially if you're interested in the details of the science. Huberman goes into a lot of details about the studies that use real-time imaging data to track the pathways in our brain that are associated with gratitude and joy. And so they're actually able to see whether certain behaviors stimulate the gratitude pathways that we have. And what Huberman found, based on the best research studies available, to his own surprise, is that the standard approaches to cultivating gratitude, things like counting our blessings, uh, maintaining a gratitude list, uh, trying to meditate on things that we're thankful for so that we actually feel more gratitude, actually have a very limited impact on our long-term gratitude. They simply don't light up the gratitude circuits in our brain very well. So what does work to develop gratitude in a way that is more permanent and sustaining? Well, Huberman says, based on the latest neuroscience available, that the most effective way to evoke a strong gratitude response doesn't involve working hard to feel more grateful. Instead, and this is what is truly remarkable, this is what he says, we get the most enduring gratitude response by immersing ourselves regularly in a narrative, in a story where one person demonstrates radical love, sacrifice, and generosity in saving or helping another person. Let me say that again. It was a surprise for Huberman. It probably wasn't what you expected to hear either. When our brains are imaged, and they can do this in real time, the most consistent and powerful way that our gratitude circuits are stimulated in a way that leads to long-term effects is when we immerse ourselves 
regularly in a narrative, in a story where one person demonstrates radical love, sacrifice, and generosity in saving or helping another person. So let me ask you, if you've heard of Jesus, does that remind you of a story that you might know? Now, Andrew Huberman is not a Christian as far as I know. The examples that he gave in his podcast were things like when when someone was about to be killed due to a genocide and a stranger intervened to save their life. But he says whatever narrative is chosen, it has to have three components. Someone in desperate need, someone else who intervenes with radical sacrifice and love, and a changed outcome. And I want to suggest to you that it isn't an accident that our brains were wired in this way to experience gratitude. Because there is an ultimate true story of God's saving love that God created us to be able to recognize. And the outline of that true story is right here in Psalm 23. Psalm 23 The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not be in want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He restores my soul. Psalm 23 reminds us that God so loved the world that he sent his only son, Jesus, who walked on this earth 2,000 years ago, who healed the sick, who gave sight to the blind. He gave care and dignity to those who were poor and marginalized and who said, I am the good shepherd, and I lay down my life for my sheep. Because we needed saving. We were in desperate need. We were just like David, walking through the valley of the shadow of death. And David was able to say, I fear no evil, for you are with me. Just like David, we live in a world broken by sin, we find ourselves in dark valleys, sometimes by circumstances that we can't control, sometimes by choices that we have made. And just like David, we can't rescue ourselves. But Jesus was sent into this world as Emmanuel, which means God with us. He was sent to seek us and to save us. And when Psalm 23 says, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. It reminds us of when Jesus sat in an upper room in Jerusalem. And this was on the night that he was betrayed by his enemies, the night before he died on a cross. And on that day, at that table, he took bread and broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you eat of it, do it in remembrance of me. And then he took a cup of wine and he said, This cup is the new covenant written in my blood for the forgiveness of sins. As often as you drink of it, do it in remembrance of me. And since that time, we remember that Jesus paid the price for our sins with his own life. And then we remember how Psalm 23 ends. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and love will follow me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And we remember that whatever enemies we're facing now, 
they don't have the last word. They may speak for a while, but shame and guilt don't have the last word in our lives. Regret and despair don't have the last word. Sorrow and loneliness and grief don't have the last word. The last word belongs to Jesus. He speaks love and forgiveness and salvation over us. Psalm 23 reminds us that the ultimate story is the true story of God's love in Jesus. That's what we call the gospel. And amazingly, the very best science that we have right now says that our brains, our neurochemistry, our bodies themselves are attuned in a way to respond to this story with lasting, sustainable gratitude. We are literally made for God's love. If I have one critique of Andrew Huberman, it would be that his podcast, for his podcast, gratitude really is the goal all by itself. That his podcast is designed to help people to live, healthy, live healthier, live happier, uh, which is an admirable goal. But when we see the invitation that God gives us to have our lives wrapped up inside of God's story of redemption and salvation, when we realize that we are invited into something far greater than ourselves, we realize that our own happiness, our own gratitude is not the final end. When we see ourselves in the gospel story, it not only generates an inexhaustible source of gratitude for us, it makes our lives better, but it also gives us incredible purpose in our lives, that we have the opportunity to partner with God in the redemptive work that he is doing all over our world. Ultimately, gratitude is not the goal in God's story. Gratitude is the byproduct of walking with God, being an ambassador of God's goodness in this world, knowing that we are secure because we are loved by him, no matter what dark valley we may be walking through. I began this message by saying that I wanted to provide every single one of us with a concrete gratitude practice that we can use starting this week. And I have three suggestions, and they're all doable enough that I would actually say that doing all three of these would be great. But if you're just looking for a place to start, I would start with the one that feels most doable for you. So first, I told you that I chose Psalm 23 on purpose. And I chose it because it not only reminds us of the entire gospel story of God's love, but it's also so familiar to many of us. And I want to encourage you a few times a week, taking just five minutes or so a day. And this is what Huberman says is what's needed to stimulate those gratitude pathways in our brain for lasting change. I invite you just to reflect on the story that is embedded in Psalm 23. And if you really want to lean in, you could even take an hour or so and memorize Psalm 23 and write it on your heart. But allow Psalm 23 to remind you of our desperate need for God in the dark valley of our brokenness. Jesus as the good shepherd who laid down his life for us that allows us to dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Our problem 
God's response and our salvation. And that will be an amazingly powerful gratitude practice in every season of our lives. My second suggestion, and this can be done with that first suggestion or as a separate thing, is to be intentional about using a favorite worship song in the same way, to immerse yourself in God's story. This may work better for you if you prefer music, but the encouragement is the same. Don't just put worship music on the background. Allow it to lead you into thinking about God's story and what God has done for you. And lastly, the third encouragement is to make it a priority to come to church regularly, whether online or in person. And it's not because church is just something good to check off of our to-do list or somehow coming to church makes God love you more. But there is something about gathering in community, uh, being able to worship in a corporate context, to be able to hear a message of who God is that connects us back to the story of God's love. And as we're connected regularly to the story of God's love, whether it's through communion, whether it's through prayer, that's what reinforces our, our brain circuitry to align with God, to be grateful for who God is and God's goodness in our lives. No matter what gratitude practice you choose, and if you have gratitude practices already, like keeping a gratitude journal, there's nothing wrong with keeping them going. Whatever is working for you to connect you with God and his goodness is great to continue. But my prayer is that the true story for all of us, the true story of Jesus's love would be real in our hearts, real in our lives. And that as we all reflect on what God has done for us, we would be able to say, just as David said, surely goodness and love will follow us all the days of our lives and we will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen.